0: Welcome to the Trinity Grace Church Tribeca podcast. At Trinity Grace Church, our mission is to help New Yorkers grow in love by practicing the way of Jesus for the good of our city. If you're interested in Trinity Grace Church Tribeca, check out our website at tgctribeca.com where you can learn more about us and learn about ways that you can help support our church and this podcast. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook to see and hear what's going on in our community. Thank you for joining us today and welcome, grace and peace to you. Luke 14.
1: 25 to 33. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. He will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. The Gospel of our Lord.
0: You can be seated. Well, first of all, how rude of Jesus to bring this up in the context of a large crowd. Like, this isn't with his private conversation with his disciples uh, or with his closest friends. Uh, Jesus is saying this in public with a large crowd around him. And if you're in marketing, you know, like when you have audience. Uh, you make the most of that audience. You make the most of that moment uh, of platform. And yet Jesus just disappoints us here and really disappoints me. I mean, this is the first Sunday back from the fall. Did he not know this was like welcome back Sunday? Did he not know that we're ready to like enter the fall with enthusiasm? And here we have this teaching on hate. Now, if you were to ask the average person, what is Jesus known for? They're probably not going to say hate, right? I mean, that's usually not what people associate with Jesus. Um, And so this teaching is abrupt. It's uh, abrasive. It cuts against the grain of what we would expect Jesus to say or to teach. And we're left wondering, what do we do with this? What do we make of this? And I think that's important. At the outset, I think it's important for us to feel the force of what Jesus is saying. to, To sense the shock that the original hearers would have had as they hear these words come off of the lips of Jesus. And as we try to feel the force of this, I want to acknowledge a few difficult things. This is very difficult language, Uh, not least because many have in their religious experience or their Christian experience, had language like take up your cross used in abusive ways, in uh, possessive ways, in manipulative ways. Um, many of us, have seen it used, that rhetoric used to control or abuse, and that is one of the most heinous things possible. Um, I sat, I had a meeting this week with uh, a therapist. I wasn't in therapy, though that would be great, um, but it was just I was meeting with a therapist, and <laughs> is that what we all say about our therapy? I don't know. Um, <laughs> but I was having lunch with a therapist, who's not mine, and <laughs> Though, though he recommended one, Um, and I, I said, I said, uh, you know, what is what is it like to to work with people who are in religious contexts? And um, the therapist shared that in his experience, one of the most um, vulnerable spaces that exist are our spiritual spaces, because even more so than sexuality, spirituality is it taps into our core vulnerabilities, our core longings for transcendence and openness. I was struck by the the words of psychotherapist and also spiritual director Gerald May when he said, we all have secrets in our hearts and I will tell you one of mine, all my life I've longed to say yes, to give myself completely to some ultimate someone or something. And when you take that, longing and that curiosity and that openness and you make it a place of pain and hurt and manipulation, it's one of the most heinous things that exists on our planet. And so this is very dark and raises a lot of like sensitivities for people. On the other side, um, think of the way that this text can underwrite apathy or even uh, inertia in relationships the person in the family who is just the jerk, right? They are um, the person who like is stubborn and uh, ostracized and isolated. And uh, this text in their hands, just as fuel for the isolating fire. And it sort of baptizes any conflict that they have. And I think that is a danger for all of us is that we can somehow take Jesus teaching like a few weeks ago that he came to bring uh, not peace, but division. That's interesting. If you're interested in that, go back and listen to the podcast. Um, But here, when he teaches about hating your family or hating your own life in order to be his disciple, that teaching in the wrong hands, again, is terrible beyond words. And so it is important for us to feel the force of this and to ask the question, what is Jesus doing here? I think one of the clues is in verse 33. Because in verse 33, you have Jesus summing up the point he's trying to make. And uh, the first time that I read through this carefully, I got to that point, the closing point, and I thought, that doesn't make sense at all to me. Like, I don't see the connection at all to what you've been saying. And this is what Jesus says. This is how he concludes. He says, in the same way, uh, those of you who do not give up everything, or some translations say, give up all your possessions. You cannot be my disciples. And I go, how is giving up your possessions connected to hating your family, your nuclear family, hating your own life, or taking up your cross? What is the connection here? And yet, when we zoom out, and I did a little bit more study and analysis on this term, I found something that was fascinating. And that is this this word for possessions is a word that is uh, uh, sort of a compound word. It's taken from two two words here, and I'll put them up on the, the wall. First is hypo, and the other is arche. Now, I'm about to commit a million semantic fallacies here, and I study linguistics, and I understand. I am simplifying here, but I think this helps you visually to make the point. Hypo means under. Arche generally means source or beginning or authority. And the sense of the word here for possessions is this sort of undercurrent in our life, this undergirding sense of power or control. The things, in other words, the things at our disposal that gives us a sense of control. Now, for some of us, that can be our immediate families or it can be our closest friendships. For some of us, it can literally be our possessions. It can be our bank accounts or our investment accounts. It can be our capital. It can be um, our land-ownings or property-ownings, it can be um, our status in society, it can be our appearance or our image, our brand, but all of us cling to something to give us a sense of ballast, of safety, of security against the world's harms and potential threats. And that's what this term is getting at, which leads us to maybe a, a, a tweaking of the translation that gets at the heart of what Jesus is saying, which is to give up all of our possessiveness. There is a, a posture, a stance that looks at relationships and stuff and says, I need this to be whole. I need this to be safe. I need this. And it's, a, it's an overgrasping an overreaching reaching. And so when you get a sense of this word and the word that Jesus used, which is pretty rare in the Bible, by the way, you start to zoom out and make sense of the context. Let me me have you consider the context for a moment. Jesus is saying, you can't be my disciple unless you hate your father and your mother and so forth. But just before that, he told a really powerful story. And that story was all about inclusion. It was a story of someone who went to throw a banquet, a a great feast, and uh, the people he invited Not all of them came or showed up. And so he said, that's fine. Uh, Let's extend the invitation. And the next wave went out and people showed up to the table and yet the table wasn't filled. And so the, the, the the party thrower said, let's go out to the highways and the byways and invite any and all, using the tag words Jesus liked to use, like the blind and the beggar and the lame and the poor. And so Jesus is telling us a story that's supposed to tell us something about the mystery of God's heart and God's posture for the world, a posture of inclusion. So there's always room at this table and that even those who would be honored guests often refuse the invitation and aren't willing to be at that table. And so there's this broad, inclusive, invitational story and then hate your parents. <laughs> but then right after this, We get compelling stories, stories that we're going to look at in the next couple of weeks, stories of a lost coin and a lost sheep and a lost son and how a family receives that lost son or goes out to find that lost sheep or does everything to search for that lost coin. And so there's a a tender searching for the outsider to include them, to welcome them back. And before that, there's this open invitation to all and to any to come and to feast and to enjoy But here, sandwiched in the middle, we have this teaching about hate. Now, I want to ask the question, what is getting in the way? I think that's partly what Jesus is getting at here. If we want to have this big, inclusive posture toward the world, and if we want to have the kind of relational dynamics where we're always looking out for the outsider and welcoming them back in, what gets in the way of that? There is a theory right now that's emergent in psychotherapy that I love and I think tells us something important. It's called Accelerated Experiential Dynamic Psychotherapy, AEDP. And one of the things that it's telling us is that we have these these social emotions that get in the way of wholeness and healing. And these social emotions are inhibitory emotions, things like anxiety and guilt and shame. And anxiety and guilt and shame are often um, inculcated in our core relationships, um, in our families, in our friendships. They are uh, uh, introduced there, they are sustained there, and they often get a really robust life there. And so we all know the feeling of being in a family environment or being in a friend circle and feeling a social inhibition I really think this, or I really feel this, but I don't feel comfortable expressing that because of shame or anxiety or fear or guilt even. And what AEDP says is that these emotions inhibit us from what? From how we really think and feel. And uh, the the version of ourself that we want to see in the world, right? The version of the self that can welcome all to the table, the version of ourself that can welcome our uh, estranged friend or family member back into the circle and that will go search for them and prioritize them. Like that better self, that preferred self, that compassionate, clear, uh, courageous, connected, curious, and calm version of ourself is only possible when we can experience how we really think and feel in a full way. And so AEDP says we, we are really bad at feeling how we really feel and knowing what that's like and going through that to the other side. And so instead, we get stuck in our inhibitions and in our coping mechanisms. We never get through to that open self in a consistent way. And what is in the way of that? Often, our closest social bonds. So it's our parents or our siblings, or our spouses, or even our children, or our closest friendships that can often get in the way of us fully experiencing how we think and feel and being in the open-hearted state, the thing that Jesus called the place of faith, the open heart to God, the open heart to our neighbor that can self-sacrifice and give and love, but instead we shrink and we constrict and we contract and we pull back because we're afraid. We're afraid of exclusion. The very things Jesus is saying the gospel is all about, the kingdom of God is all about, God is all about, are the very things that make us kind of afraid. And so, we can reevaluate what Jesus is saying, I think, through the lens of the wider context, through this sense of possessiveness, and we can start to put our finger on the pulse of what's at stake here. Hate is a strong word. Yes? Yeah. But, in... um, In the ancient Near East, hate is often used as rhetoric to sort of like uh, dial up the stakes. And what the biblical teaching, if it has a consistent thread, one of those threads is that there is something really profound at stake in this life. Um, That there is a a choice that always needs to be sort of at the center of our awareness, of our consciousness. And it's a choice between uh, a surface reality, you know, the way the world works, the way that we sort of normalize and this undercurrent, this deeper reality, or a deeper magic, rooted in who God is, the God of love. And that to move from up here to down here, there has to be a conscious choice, and often things hold us back from that. Jesus lived this. You remember, Jesus was in the wilderness, and he was faced with temptations. These are voices that would hold Jesus back from a life of love, that would hold Jesus back from his sense of purpose and destiny. And every time, Jesus has have to learn to say no to it. He has to sort of like cut ties with it. He has to set a boundary and distance himself from it in order to approach it in a healthy way. So the devil promises him, I'll give you everything here and more if you just worship me. And he says no. And he says, if you're, you know, um, the son of God, throw yourself from the temple mount And angels will save you. And he quotes scripture and Jesus says, no. And so on and so forth. Take this this stone and turn it into bread. And Jesus says, no. Jesus met resistance in his own life. Uh, On multiple accounts in the gospel stories, his parents or his siblings are seen to be um, dismayed, confused, rebuking him. And uh, Jesus sort of relativizes them. He, it's not that he doesn't love his, his family and isn't committed to his family. We see many instances of that. But it's that he can relativize their voice when it gets in the way of the way of love, the God of love, and the calling that God has on all our lives. Jesus has a way of dialing down their voice at crucial moments so that he can lean into courage and love. The same is true with his disciples. You remember Peter at one point is like, uh, upon hearing that Jesus is is going to die, and Jesus has a sense of his imminent death, Peter's like, no, 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 this can't happen, and pulls him aside and rebukes him, and Jesus has to turn the volume down and says, get behind me, and even calls Peter Satan, which is pretty harsh, right? But Jesus is having to model this and to live this. He's having to say no to certain voices, dial down the influence of certain relationships in order to lean into this greater calling, the kind of calling that welcomes out of the table, the kind of calling that goes after the lost son, the kind of calling that speaks truth to the powers and gets him in so much trouble. Jesus lives a, a, well, I, I would say he lives a fearless life, but he lives with courage. He has broken the backbone of fear that's often upheld in our core relationships and sustained in our core relationships. And so what Jesus is putting his finger on is that your posture to your core relationships, your posture to the stuff you lean on for security and significance has to shift. It must shift if you will be my disciple. Because to be my disciple means taking risks. It means being vulnerable. It means creating space for mutuality and love. And to do that, you can't be addicted to your security blankets. You can't be addicted to your tribe. You've got to learn to root yourself instead in the unconditional love of God. And that is, at the same time, a very difficult and a very beautiful thing. Jesus said, my burden's light. I, I, you know, I don't come to bring a heavy yoke and set it on your shoulders. In fact, he rebuked the religious leaders of his time for tying up heavy burdens and putting them on people's shoulders and not lifting a finger to help. Jesus knows that connecting with the love of God at the core of your being is a burden that is truly light. But it feels like death. It, it, it is the... Uh, reorienting of all the fundamental postures and instincts of our life. It makes us rethink our family relationships. It makes us rethink our uh, friendships. It makes us rethink our careers. It makes us rethink our wealth. It makes us rethink everything with which we are possessive. Because love creates gratitude. And when you live from love, you live with a sense of uh, joy and you live with a sense of uh, Everything is, you're drawn to the beauty of life. But when you are possessive, it's bitter to the core. And I don't mean to critique you. Let's say you're bitter here this morning. This is not to shame you. It's simply to shine a light on what's at the heart of that bitterness. You know, it's interesting right now that there are different poles uh, or movements or magnetisms depending on what circles you run in. I noticed that in very conservative circles, like even this week, there was news that came out. Uh, Al Mohler, who's a, a, a kind of a, a lead thinker, theologian, ethicist in the Southern Baptist uh, seminary world, uh, which you guys are all dialed into, right? Like, really <laughs> know a lot about. Um, the, he he kind of came out with a statement that that indicated that like the true human potential and purpose is rooted to marriage and having children. And There was this sort of like outrage and backlash against that to say whoa what about what about all the single folk you know what about the people who choose not to get married or choose not to have children or can't have children are we somehow like under god's purpose so there's a sense in which in some circles the value of family is so elevated it's it, it becomes distorting it distorts our sense of human uh flourishing of human calling but then there's like there's other Instincts in circle. I noticed, like in, uh, well, let's say, progressive Twitter world, um, where canceling is just very, very uh, prevalent right now. And that instinct to cancel. Now, and I can step back and I can say, canceling, uh, does everybody know what canceling is? No? Okay, let's see. Hmm, how to explain canceling. Um, so let's just say someone makes a mistake. Um, if if you violate an ideology that is cherished or you violate an ethic that is cherished then you're cancelled, you're done with I'm not going to give you time, I'm not going to give you voice, I'm not going to give you space in my life, Uh, you should be fired or let go of or distanced from, it is a, a sense of relativizing or pushing out a person based on the violation of an ideology or an ethic, sounds very Puritan doesn't it? And I understand it. it. There's very good reasons why that, uh, the angst and the anger at so much injustice and oppression has come to the head of the canceling response. And yet so much of it is rooted in a, a purity mindset that says we, we have this pure ideology, this pure ethic, and if it's violated, there's no space for you. You're canceled, you're out, you're expelled. But even that cuts against the grain of what Jesus teaches about the open table and going after the one who's lost. Now, listen, I think institutions and organizations need to have policies and need to have boundaries, and sometimes people should be fired, and sometimes relationships should have healthy boundaries in order to recreate trust or, and so forth. But this canceling metaphor of at the organizational level has become a habitual relational instinct. And when that becomes our instinct, that we just cancel the people that disagree with us, we cancel the people who, uh, who cut us, or rub us the wrong way, well, now... We're in a really difficult world of trouble. A world where Esther Perel says, you know, people have a little more than one person they can count on to call an emergency situation. But this is an era of isolation. And in an era of isolation, the instinct that's getting momentum is canceling? That's not the gospel. That's not the love of God. We can pursue boundaries and relationships that are healthy, that help recreate trust or protect ourselves in pain and still be committed to forgiveness. We can pursue justice with all our hearts and be super committed to justice in our world and yet still hope for restoration of people who have transgressed or who have violated. Like this dichotomy of either it's justice or you're 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 not, you know, you're giving in. That's that's an old religious move. We religious people, we know that move. And so Jesus is saying here, you've got to reorient your entire constellation. And that could be your family, it could be your tribe, it could be your political party, it could be any number of things that you identify with that give you bearing, ballast security. And Jesus is saying, there's a different way. In fact, he's like, you've got to count this cost. It's going to take some preparation. You're going to have to think this through. This isn't going to be uh, the kind of thing you whimsically fall into or stumble into. No, to, to live into the way of God's love. To receive it, to express it, all that stuff doesn't come by just like, oh, I'm going to try this or I'm going to dabble with this. No, there is a sober gut check that says, what am I really leaning on? And can I learn to detach from that? And in the hyperbolic language of this teaching, hate it in order to come back to it in a healthy way so that the family, the nuclear family that kept me from love, I now can be embody as the prodigal son family that's inclusive and loving and sees the person over the transgression. And so the invitation comes out to us, I think, afresh to evaluate our own lives, to think what are the the core commitments and core loyalties that may be inhibiting me from fully experiencing the life God has for me and the love God wants for me and from me. What's in the way? And am I willing to reorient that relationship, redefine that relationship? Maybe it means setting a boundary for a period. Maybe it means, I don't think it means canceling, but I do think it means sometimes some hard conversations to say, I don't feel free in this relationship. I don't feel like I can express who I, how I really think and how I really feel, and it's holding me back from love. And maybe we need to learn how to become the people who can be safe social bonds where people can feel how they really feel and think how they really think and get to the open heart of faith that Jesus continually invited us to. And so I wonder how the Holy Spirit is taking this teaching and this story and applying it to your life. I'm not a prescriptive preacher. Those of you who know me know I'm not gonna give you like the three applications that every one of you need to do. I don't think I'm that smart. Um, but what I do think is that God takes these stories and our own experiences and makes connections in our, in our mind and in our heart and, and gives us a sense of nudge. And I wonder what that nudge is for you this week as you consider this teaching and you consider your life. And whatever feels imminent or threatening or needs your attention right now, how do you connect the dots to that? I want to leave us with a few moments to reflect because we come to this table, and this is a table of the way of Christ. A body broken, blood poured out. And Jesus said, to follow me, to be my disciple, you got to be willing to take up your cross. And that's a weird way, of, that's a weird way to talk. I mean, for us, it's like you got to be willing to sit in the electric chair, right? You have to be willing to face state penalty that's the kind of commitment to love that I'm calling you to love, no matter what. And so when we come to this table, how is that intensity of love beaming into your life, beaming into your heart right now? And how could you open your heart to it, to receive it freely so that you can offer it freely? Let's pray. God, we thank you for this, uh, gospel text, even though it is so tremendously difficult, uh, we thank you. We're grateful for the truth that's in it, and help us to get our minds and our lives around it. Help us to apply it this week. As we do life on Monday, and then on Tuesday, and then on Wednesday, help us to think through the lens of this teaching. What does it mean for us? Holy Spirit, guide us. And galvanize our commitment as we come to this table. Renew a sense of your presence. Renew a sense of your love. Renew a sense of your grace here. Give us a sense of strength at the core of our being that can help us say no to the things we need to say no to so that your love can flow freely in this world. We pray in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit.
1: Amen.